Thank you so much for that. If you'll turn your Bibles today to the book of Joshua, please. Joshua chapter 5. All the young people are dismissed to go back to their classes. We are again are grateful to have you today uh, in church. And I know there's people that are traveling and things that are going on, but uh, church is important. Amen. Would you agree along with me that church is essential? And uh, so we're grateful to, to be here and to have you here with us. I think of the lady that went to a photographer to have her picture taken. And uh, she wanted everything to be just right. So she said to the photographer, now, he, she said, do me justice with these pictures. And the photographer told her, ma'am, pardon me, but you don't need justice. You need mercy. And uh, all of us, I agree, I think we all agree, need mercy. Amen. Today. And so let's ask the Lord to give that in our lives. What would you say, or who, I guess the question is, would you say controls your life? Who is behind the decisions that you make? Dave Navarro wrote an article on this subject, The Five People Who Secretly Control Your Life. And he says that you may not realize just how many people that influence your decisions and and the choices that you make. Some of these influences are good, while others are bad. They feed you ideas about what is wrong and about what is right and other decision-making criteria that guides you. These five people, he says, that secretly run your life. They control you. They are secret in that usually you don't even realize that it's going on. You don't realize they are making those choices for you. Now, who might you ask are those five people? Well, let me give them to you. Uh, According to Mr. Navarro, your heroes, your nemesis, you know your nemesis, your enemies, they have a lot to say about how you, how, what decisions you make sometimes. So your heroes, your nemesis, your parents, your spouse, and your image of what you should be. Now I found that interesting as I look back at the decisions I've made and the choices I've made over my life and just how much those five different people have had uh, had big bearing on the decisions and choices I've made. How many times have you been influenced by these five people? Not all bad, but not all good. I preach today on who's in control. Who's in control in your life? Let's look at this uh, passage, Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. And uh, verse 13 through 15 is our text. And then I also want to read a couple of verses in chapter 6. All right, we're in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and behold, uh, look, look, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord? Unto his servant. And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose the shoe from thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Let's continue on chapter 6. Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given unto thine hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. And ye shall come past the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once, this shalt thou do six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And on the seventh day, ye shall come past the city seven times, and the priests shall blow 
with the trumpet. Now, here's the command. He said, I've given you the city. You're going to take Jericho. You're going to be victorious. Here's what I want you to do. Walk around it. <laughs> That's the command. Walk around. Not only going to walk around it, you're going to walk around it six days. Once every day. And then on the seventh day, you're going to walk around it seven times. And that was the battle plan. Father, thank you for this passage this morning. I pray it help us to learn something from it that would direct us also in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, our text is this meeting that Joshua had. Uh, he had a close encounter with God, actually met God. He was in the presence of the Holy. Now, I'm sure that all of us have heard stories about the Battle of Jericho. We've got songs in Sunday school. We sing about it, and, and uh, hopefully your children, uh, th that might be the type of story they're hearing even right now as they're over in, in children's church. But you probably haven't heard as much about this meeting before Jericho, the text that we read. Uh, because, but without these verses, which are vital, you're not really going to understand the Battle of Jericho. Without these three verses... The battle of Jericho is nothing but an imperialistic venture. And so these verses make all the difference. And I want to give you some background before we get to this meeting that Joshua had with this man bearing a sword. The, the people of Israel had just crossed Jordan. Uh, the people of Israel had been in Egypt, as you know, as slaves for a long time, for centuries. Originally, they had come from Canaan. They came when Joseph was the second in command after he had saved Egypt from the famine, and now people were traveling to Egypt to try to get food, and his brothers came, and, and after they were reunited, he moved his family there into Egypt. They got a, a nice place to stay. The Pharaoh was kind to them. But eventually, uh, after they had been there long enough, there the Bible says a, a Pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph and did not know the history there. And so they enslaved the Israelites, and for 400 years, the Israelites were enslaved to the Egyptians. Then you know the story through Moses. God led them out. They were brought out of Egypt. They came up against the Red Sea. The army was behind them chasing them. When they thought it was absolutely impossible, God allowed Moses to raise his staff and the Red Sea was split and they walk over on dry ground. What another, another great story we learned in Sunday school. They came through the wilderness. They came to the land that God promised them. In this passage, we have Joshua viewing the city. Jericho is the first one that they encountered. Jericho is a huge walled city. It seems to be completely impenetrable. Humanly speaking, it's impossible for the Israelites to take this city. Joshua went out and he's looking at it. I have to think that as he's looking at this city of Jericho, he's remembering what happened 40 years ago. You see, Joshua isn't here for the first time tonight looking at the city. Uh, Joshua has been here 40 years before, and it's important for us to remember that part as we look at this story. If you'll go back to Numbers chapter 13 and, verse, and, and chapter 14, uh, 40 years prior to this, the Israelites had gotten very near to Canaan. Moses was still in charge at that time. He sent out 12 spies to view the land, one from every tribe. Uh, two of these scouts were Caleb from the land, uh, tribe of Judah and Joshua from the tribe of Ephraim. And Joshua and Caleb made two, and then there was uh, the others that went out before them. Remember the song you learned? Uh, Twelve men went to Canaan land. Uh, ten were bad and two were good. Well, Joshua and Caleb were the two good ones, and the ten were uh, went with them were the bad ones. We'll see why. 
uh, they saw Jericho, they saw the land. They came back and they all had the same report. This is an amazing, amazing land that God has given us. In fact, all of them agreed, Numbers 13, 27, and they told him and said, We came into the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. But that wasn't all their message. Yes, the land was wonderful, but they went on in verse 28, Nevertheless, the people that be strong dwell in the land. The cities are walled and very great. There are enemies there, they said. There's the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, the Mosquito Bites. There's all kinds of enemies in this land, and that scared them. They came back with a report saying, these people are so great, and we're like grasshoppers in their eyes. Well, not everybody agreed with the message. Uh, the Well, first, I, I found this interesting too, and I'm not going to get all into it, but uh, the, the people were strong, they were scared, or the people were strong, so these ten were scared. Caleb and Joshua, though, they said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are able to overcome it. Why? Because God told us He's going to give it to us. And God will give us the land. They looked at the people, yes, they're big. God's bigger. And so they had faith in God, and the rest of the spies spread a bad report, and the people, of course, believed the bad report, and they cried out against Moses. In chapter 14, verse 2, again, I'm just giving you some background here, that children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron and the whole congregation and said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt! Would God we had died in the wilderness! This is always curious to me. This is like the fifth time they have this complaint. Would that we had died back in Egypt! Isn't dead dead? No matter where you die, if you die free or if you die a slave, I mean, you can't get deader than dead. And yet they're constantly complaining that they didn't die back in Egypt. Uh, I just found, I find that curious every time I see this complaint. Joshua and Caleb in verse 9 of Numbers 14, they tore their clothes because they were so upset. They said this, Rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land. The Lord is with us, fear them not. Now while all this is going down, they're arguing about whether or not they should go forward. God shows up. And this is what God says in verse 11. How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me for the signs which I've showed among them? Now, God had split the Red Sea. He had brought water out of a rock. He had fed them manna over and over. He had proved, I'll take care of my people. I'm not going to let you down. Over and over he had come through and now he's telling them to go through the land and they're full of fear, too much to do so. Then Moses Praise for forgiveness, a wonderful passage of him praying on, uh, on behalf of God's people. God said, I'll forgive them, but not one of them will see the land that I promised their forefathers. God then promises that only Caleb and Joshua would live through the next 40 years uh, to see the land. The rest of the people would wander the, the, the wilderness for 40 long years as they all died off until it came that no man that was there, that was full of fear, lasted past that 40 years. When Israel heard the words of the Lord, they it grieved them. They immediately said, oh, hey, Moses, Moses, we made a big mistake. You know what? We'll go. We'll fight. Moses said, it's too late. You can read this uh, throughout those, those chapters. Uh, but he told them, it's too late now. You didn't obey God when it was time. And uh, you disobeyed God's command. He's not going with you. They said, we're going to go anyway. The Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived there defeated them. We said growing up, they put on them an old-fashioned whooping. 
And it's a good lesson for all of us. Obey the Lord now. For one day it may be too late. And so we ought to be uh, obedient as He commands. And God kept them out there for 40 years. They wandered around till every one of those disobedient people were dead. Now, 40 years later, only Joshua and Caleb are living. Even Moses has already passed off the scene. Uh, Joshua is leading the people. And Joshua is an older man now. We don't know exactly how old, but Caleb was 85, and Joshua had to be around that age. So uh, here he is, the leader of God's people. He goes out by himself. He's looking at Jericho. He's remembering all that happened 40 years ago. He's thinking right now about the time they're going to claim, finally claim God's promise of taking the city. He remembers standing there with the other people, how he and Caleb were ganged up on, uh, up, uh, others ganged upon them, and how God essentially wiped out an entire generation to plant a new people in Canaan. And why, I ask, did that have to happen? Fear. That's why. They were afraid. They saw the enemy. They saw the problem. They saw what was in front of them, and they were full of fear. And fear is what kept them from obeying God. I think it's interesting that fear at that point was called rebellion. In Numbers 14.9, Rebel ye not against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land. Now this is not really normally how we look at fear. We think fear, uh, you know, somebody has fear, and there's really nothing you can do about it. But the Bible says that your fear is a sin. Your fear is rebellion against God if it keeps you from doing what's right. Now, I think we all have heard enough about the subjects of fear and courage. Uh, fear is not really the opposite of courage because courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is doing the right thing in spite of fear. Uh, courage is going forward even when you're scared to death but still doing the right thing. It's okay to have fear as long as it doesn't stop you from doing what's right. But here it did stop them. And that's what made fear rebellion. There's a very disturbing verse in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. It talks about all the different kinds of people that are thrown in the lake of fire. I don't like reading these verses because in some of these categories are friends of mine, family of mine, and the same could be said for you. But the Bible talks about the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in a lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We can understand that list. We understand abominable murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers. But the verse doesn't start with that list. The verse starts with a different class of people. It starts out with, but the fearful. The fearful. Isn't that something? The fearful is, is put in the same category as these others, unbelieving abominable, murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters. It is a serious thing for us to allow fear to keep us from doing the will of God. It's a serious thing, as we see here. The question is not if we should obey, it is when we should obey, and it should be immediate. So back to our text here, Joshua is looking at the city. seems that Joshua is doing some reconnoitering of the, of the land or of Jericho before the attack. He seems to be alone. If he wasn't alone, at least he's doing all the talking and the action here. He looks at the city. He's beginning to consider how the battle might commence. Remember, God hasn't yet told him how it's going to go down, and this is an impossible task. But Joshua, uh, I, I, the attitude of Joshua, Moses, I 
believe, if you look at the context, was sent, sending out spies as to if we can take it. And Joshua came, uh, he sent out spies as to how they'll take it. There was a different difference in those two. And so here's Joshua. And to his surprise, he sees a man standing in front of him. He's fully armed. He has a drawn sword. He's ready to attack. I think this is an amazing scene. Don't forget, uh, Joshua is 80 plus years old. If the man standing in front of him has a drawn sword, that means he is ready for action. Would you agree with me? He's ready to fight. And so what does Joshua do? Run? No, he doesn't. Uh, the Bible says Joshua went up unto him. No, he goes right up to him. He got in his face. He challenged him. And he asked the, in the question he asks, there's an implication we might just have to throw down right here and right now. He says, art thou for us or for our adversaries? I like Joshua because Joshua was a black and white kind of guy. All throughout his ministry, you see, there wasn't much gray area for him. Uh, remember the one day he says, choose you this day. Choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's very likely you might have that plaque at your house. That's a very well-known verse. Uh, there's only two sides, Joshua says. Choose you this day, but I and mine are going to serve the Lord. Uh, I love the fact that he presented only these two options, and we see from that it was a public choice. Uh, Joshua made his choice known before all the Israelites. He showed them where he stood. It was a pronounced choice. We will serve the Lord. Joshua made it clear who he would serve. He did not mumble his words or double talk like so many people do. It was a proven choice. Joshua walked what he talked. He had been faithful to God his whole life. He was not a pretender. It was a personal choice. Joshua did not make the decision because the crowd chose Jesus or the crowd chose God over false gods. His choice reflected his own personal convictions. It was a parental choice. He said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He lived his faith in his family. Uh, he did not send his children to church. He was involved with his children and worshiping the Lord, and he led them in it. It was a public, a pronounced, a proven, a personal, parental. It was also a persuasive choice because Joshua's choice encouraged the Israelites to make the same choice. Uh, after he declared who he would serve, you know what they said? Verse 16, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. You know the choices you make are going to make an impact on others. And especially if you're public about them, and if you're strong about them, you're going to affect those around you. And so uh, the, the option, by the way, is still before us today, who will you serve? Now, again, back to our text. He gave two options to this man before him. Art thou for us or for our adversaries? In other words, he's throwing down a challenge. I personally believe Joshua's ready to fight himself if need be. He's ready to take this man out if it was necessary. You can either fight to the death or you can join me in this battle because I'm the general. He says, are you for us or you for our adversaries? You either have to be for us or against us. There's no neutrality. You've got to choose a side. Boy, isn't that true today still? Like the guy that uh, I read about that uh, didn't in the Civil War didn't want to fight for either side. So he wore a blue shirt and gray pants. And guess what? Both sides shot him. Amen. You got to choose a side. You can't just try to be neutral. And so here, 
Joshua was saying, we don't have any observers here. Whose side are you on? Notice the man's response to Joshua's question. Art thou for us or for our adversaries? The man said, no. Don't you love that? When you ask an either or question and somebody says no or yes. I didn't ask for yes or no. I asked for an either or. I want this or that. But he says, no. That can be frustrating sometimes. Uh, But he's essentially saying here, to, to ask me whether I'm for you or against you is the wrong question. And then he says, nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord, now am I come. God does not take sides. He is the side. Understand. And we constantly like to think that way and pray that way that God would be on our side, but He does not take sides. He is the side. He's not here to join your forces. He's here to lead your forces. Uh, At the height of the Civil War, one of Lincoln's advisors uh, was commenting, I'm grateful that God is on the side of the Union. And this was Abraham Lincoln's response, and I quote, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. You know the best thing you can do today, friend, and the best thing I can do is get on God's side. That's the best thing we can do. Now, Joshua responded well. He instantly hits the dirt. He gets down prostrate in front of him, and he says, What saith my Lord unto his servant? Joshua immediately understands who he's talking to, He doesn't argue. He doesn't take any time. He gets down in front of him and says, now you command me. All instantly, instantly he recognized it's not about whether you're on that side or you're on my side. It matters if I'm on your side. You command me. Great response. Now I want to take both a theological and a practical lesson from this. Uh, Number one, uh, this is Jesus here. Now scenes like this in the Old Testament are called theophanies. Appearances of God or deity to man. This is there, There's still a debate out there. If you read different commentaries, you'll get different uh, answers. But there's a debate out there whether this was the pre-incarnate Christ appeared in human form or whether it was an angel. I believe that this was the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to show you why. Uh, the, the Lord in, verse, in chapter 6, by the way, uh, I think is just an extension of what happens here. Now, chapter divisions are not inspired. We understand that. The words are, but chapter divisions are not inspired. That was added much later. And so sometimes there's a break where there's not really a break. I believe that this com- this uh, chapter 6, verse 1, just is a continuation here of what's happening in, in chapter 5. So I believe that just bleeds over. Now, the reasons that I believe this is the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, there, there's, there's a many we could go into. I'm not going to go into all of them. But one of the main ones is Joshua worships him, and he accepts Joshua's worship. Only God can be worshipped. Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5 through chapter 8. Now in Revelation 22, 8, something interesting happens. I'll read you, and I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard them and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Understand? There's an angel. John falls down in front of the angel to worship. Pay very close attention to what happens next. Verse 9 of Revelation 22. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and any which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. The angel in Revelation actually seems to get upset there. He says, hey, get up. 
Don't you dare. Don't worship me. He says, ultimately, I'm like the prophets were. I'm a created being. Uh, the angel then identified himself with all those who live their lives governed by the word of God. Essentially, he's saying, yes, I'm powerful compared to you, but I'm a created being just like you are. If, by the way, friend, if you worship any created being or thing, you're going to get yourself in trouble. We could park there worshiping power, money, influence, self-promotion. Man, I was homeschooled. I have to sometimes use smaller words, okay? But through social media, all those things, self-worship, Get up, the angel said. Don't worship me. Worship God. But back on our text, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship. And what does the man say? Thank you for worshiping me. As a matter of fact, get your shoes off. You're on holy ground. He accepted it. He, he wants Joshua to realize who he is. Joshua is in the presence here of the holy, the uncreated. He's in the presence of the beginningless, the alpha and omega. This is Jesus Christ, the Lord himself, who has come to fight for us. He did not come to take sides. He is the side. And he wants Joshua to make sure uh, he's on the right one. Secondly, we see it in the reaction here. Jesus is absolutely holy. We need to get the right picture of God. Jacob seeks to meet God, ends up in an all-night wrestling match. Job seeks to meet God and meets him in a tornado. Joshua wants to meet God and meets a man of war with a drawn sword. Meeting God is not always warm and fuzzy. Sometimes it involves some struggle. And always it involves recognition of who he is and who we are. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6. What did, jo what did Isaiah say when he saw who God was compared to who he is? Woe is me. Uh, he re recognized his own problem. We have to acknowledge the holiness of God. We love to talk about the love of Jesus. You turn on your television today and you look at guys with all kinds of nice rings and, and uh, white teeth and big smiles and poofy hair and, and uh, big churches. And I got nothing against big churches, but uh, these TV ministries and they'll talk about the power of positive thinking and the love, love, love of Jesus and all those things are just fine, but you cannot focus on the love of Jesus if you do not see his holiness, if you do not see his greatness, then his love really can have no transforming benefit in your life. How many times do people come to Christianity because they have an issue? It happens all the time uh, in my meeting people in council. I have self-esteem problems. I have relationship problems. I'm having financial problems. And so you come with your problem to the Lord. I need someone to help me live the life that I'm already living. I have a campaign going on here. I want to know, are you for me or against me? That's the attitude sometimes with which we come to God. And we can't come to God this way. As long as you do that, you don't know who you're talking to. Uh, don't We don't ask God to come into our lives as our assistant. He is to be the Lord of our life, not our get-out-of-trouble-free card. Amen. He needs to be our general, captain. Remember the, I'll give you an example here out of the New Testament. Remember the two thieves on the cross? They were both thieves, they were both bad men, but we seem to refer sometimes to one as the good thief and one as the bad thief because one of them made a good decision while he's on the cross. Jesus hanging on the cross, there's two thieves surrounding him and one thief 
uh, basically says this, and of course I'm paraphrasing, if you're the Son of God, get us down. I will believe in you if you get us down off this cross. In other words, I have an agenda. I'd like to survive. Will you please help me? Are you with me or against me? The other thief recognized who this was. The first thief said, are you with me or against me? The second thief said, I realize the real question is not whether God is for me or against me, but whether I'm for or against Him. And he said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. You can't come to God like the first thief did, successfully. Yet how often we do. When your faith in God is contingent on, will you help me out of this mess I'm in? Uh, will you help me pass this test? Will you get me this job? Will you help me reach my goals? And all of that's a different way of saying, are you with me or are against me? Are you against me? Jesus' answer to that is that's the wrong question. The answer to that question is, no, I'm not with you or against you. Uh, the point is that I will be, uh, not that I will be with you or against you, but whether you will be with or against me. In other words, if you come to God continually and say, I will obey if, you haven't really come at all. You don't recognize who He is. When you, have, you haven't come to grips with who you're talking to, you're still the master of your life. You're still the Lord of your life. You're, you're still trying to get Him enlisted in your army. You're the general. He's the lieutenant. God says, I, don't, I either don't come in at all, or when I come in, I'm the general. See, Joshua immediately recognized that when Jesus told him that. Neither come as a captain of the Lord of the host. Joshua's down on his knees accepting what he says. When we realize who he is, what will we do? Well, we will do just what Joshua did. Hit the deck. Take our shoes off, metaphorically speaking. Recognize we're on holy ground and we'll worship. God is in charge of all things at all times in every situation. We call that the sovereignty of God. And to call God sovereign means that he is the undisputed commander of the universe. He knows what he is doing. He knows why he is doing it. If God is not sovereign, then God is not God. And if God is not sovereign, then who is? God's sovereignty is the answer to the biggest question of all. Who's in charge here? God's in charge. We best recognize that. No Bible doctrine is more obvious than the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. You can find it pretty much on every page of your Bible. Here's just a few examples. Job 23, 13. But he is in one mind, and who can turn him? And what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. Job understands that he cannot demand anything from God. In and of himself, he has no power to change his awful condition. God does what he wants, and Job is powerless to change him. Uh, Job 42.2 introduces the final uh, chapter of Job's saga. It comes after God has given some lessons with creation. And Job kind of flunked that test as he's answering those questions. He couldn't answer anything God had brought him. Now thoroughly humble, he confesses that God is all-powerful. He says, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. God does what God is, uh, knows is best. No one stands against him. This confession le leads Job to repentance for questioning God's plan. 
may I say that when we, like Job, recognize who he is, and in the same light recognize who we are, it will always lead to humility. And all that pride is, by the way, is thinking higher of self than we should. Oh, we need to be done with pride. Those who travel the road of humility will never be bothered with heavy traffic. Not many people there. Minutes ago we talked about fear. Well, both fear and pride are a big problem in our lives. Pride leads to sins of commission, doing things we ought not do. Fear leads to sins of omission, not doing things we ought to do. And both of them are a problem. And the comprehension of God's power and sovereignty in our life will eliminate fear and pride. Take care of both of them if we recognize who he is. Romans 11.33 Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. This is a great statement was made right after Paul asserted that the gospel is God's answer to man's sin. No one could have foreseen how God would respond to the human condition. And Paul is overwhelmed by the awesomeness of the gospel. Everything is from him through Him and to Him. God alone gets the glory. And we dare ask, are you for me or against me? What do we think? We better be for Him. He doesn't take sides. He is the side. Now, with that, all that in mind, here's a wonderful truth for you. God ultimately is for you. He is. He, he sent His Son to die on a cross that every single human being that is born under the curse of sin, which is every single human being, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Uh, we've all forsaken. We've all went after our own way as sheep gone astray. So every one of us are in need of salvation. Uh, none of us can earn our own salvation because the best we can offer our righteousness are as filthy rags to the Lord in comparison to His holiness. The wages of our sin is death, Romans 6.23. That's the only thing we really earn is death because of our sin, but God sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, friend, the gospel, what a blessing the gospel is. And He is for us. Now, this does not mean He's for us in the way that we always expect. It does not mean that He's always going to get on board with your agenda. But I love this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you an expected end. God loves you. He wants you in His family. If you're His child, He wants you to live abundantly. The secret to all this is we need to know His position and we need to know our position. He's in charge. I am not. I need to submit myself to Him. And so, our position. You say, preacher, what is our position? On our face, our shoes off, knowing that he is the captain, asking what Joshua did, tell me what to do next. By the way, only when this happens, only when we have the proper attitude and we're in front of the Lord, I mean, I just, in, in the picture of my mind, I think uh, Joshua's still on his face before God when the Lord tells him what he tells him in chapter 6. I think it's just a continuation. And so, only when we are completely submitted to the Lord do we follow God even when it makes no sense? Now think about the instruction that Joshua, the great war general, 
Joshua fought wars uh, for Moses. He was a military leader. Uh, let's just insert someone like General Patton, all right? Somebody who's a fighter. That was Joshua. And God says, I'm going to have you take the city by walking around it. Imagine that message. I don't know if they sent an option for surrender, but imagine Joshua would send a uh, courier into the city with a white flag, a message from the general, and it says on that, uh, we demand your unconditional surrender, and if you do not, we're going to walk around your city. Think about it. It's ridiculous. And if you don't, we're going to walk around it the second day too. And then come the third day, we're going to walk around it again. That's not a threat, okay? And yet, that's what God told Joshua to do. And guess what he did? He did it. It takes some faith for six days to walk around the city. And then on the seventh day, now, I want you to do it seven times. And so, they walk around the city all those times. Can you imagine the taunts coming from the top of the walls? Oh, we're scared of you! As they're walking around the city. But when they did what God said, and they followed through with God's instructions, God won the victory for them. God won a victory for them they could never have won on their own. And He'll do the same for you. But it requires Him to be in charge, not you. It requires you to say, hey, I'm not the general. I'm not asking God for you to be on my side or for me or against me. I'm asking, I want to be for you. You're the one that's in charge. And that's where we really get, we stop trying to get him on our agenda and we get on his team. And great things can happen when we get on his team. Amen? Every head bowed, every eye closed, the mother piano has come. I don't know how the Lord used this message in your life. Maybe you're here today and you say, preacher, I'm not even in God's family. Well, that today, friend, can change. That can change immediately. Because <coughs> he sent his son that whosoever calls on him can be saved. And that can happen at any time. But maybe you're here today and you say, you know, I've lived with a frustration of life. I've tried to control. I've made a mess out of things. And I try to do this and it fails. I try to do that. It's time in my life that I just need to give the reins over to the Lord. He needs to be in control in my life. And if you do that, great things can happen. Would you stand along with me as she begins to play heads bowed eyes?